Taliban stop a bus. They stop a bus and they announce who is working for government or for U.S. Army. I was working, but you know, I reading a newspaper. What is your name? I say, oh, my name is Misar. You know, where are you working? I say, oh, I'm a student. You know, I'm a student. Okay, what what, what is your father working? I say, my father is selling fruits. You know, <laughs> this was a story that we were making every day, and I know telling lie is is a crime. But we had no choice, you know. If it, we told to, uh, the truth, they will kill us. Nassar Mahmoud has lived most of his life as a refugee from Afghanistan. His family first fled to Pakistan, but difficult conditions and restrictions eventually forced him back to Afghanistan, where he risked his life under constant threat by the Taliban by working for the U.S. Army. After at least three terrorist attacks against the base, the last of which resulted in him being injured by a car bomb, he applied for a special immigrant visa and came to Houston, Texas in 2014. Last year, he was named one of Hurricane Harvey's heroes by Univision when he and a group of about 20 volunteers helped firefighters put out a house fire, distributed supplies, helped move belongings to higher areas and families to safer locations. He told Univision why he did this, saying, These people welcome us here in the United States, and these people accept us here in the United States, and we feel proud that we helped someone. As a human, we help them. I'm your host, Tiffany Jelke, and this is In Their Own Voices, where we learn about refugees and put their stories in the heart of the data. On this episode, after we hear more of Nassar's story, Escaping the Taliban in Afghanistan, we will talk with Susan Martin, Emeritus Professor of International Migration at Georgetown University. Dr. Martin is one of the leading experts on migration. For now, let's dive back into Nassar's story. Between 1979 and 1989, the Soviet-Afghan war was fought by U.S. and Pakistan-backed Mujahideen and Maoist guerrilla groups against the Soviet army. Between 562,000 and 2 million civilians were killed, while millions of Afghans fled the country as refugees, seeking safety mostly in Pakistan and Iran. Nassar's family fled Afghanistan for Pakistan when he was five years old. We have fled from Afghanistan to Pakistan because my father, he was in military. And the people, they were trying to kill him because they support and their time government. But yeah, my family tried to stay over there. But one of my uncle, you know, he was also in the military. He was a colonel at that time. People, these commanders, killed him. And they didn't give us a place or time that we can take care of his body. And that was a very bad sadness time that we travel with our uncle's body to Pakistan. And the, his body was with us, and we traveled, and we went toward there, and then we did all the funeral ceremony in Pakistan and not in our country. And my family never uh, wanted to become a refugees, especially in Pakistan, and the jobs and the new cultures, new country, the language problems. It was basically very hard for my family. In Pakistan, they faced a difficult world one in which everything was foreign and challenging, from the language to limited employment and educational opportunities. No, it was a very bad experience to be a refugee in Pakistan. 
But in, um, uh, in Pakistan, um, my four brothers and three sisters born who are there, but they didn't give them any citizenship or any free school services like government schools, and all of them went in private schools, which are very expensive. Like my father, he is a well-educated person. His dream was that we also completed our education. In that case, he sent us only in private school, but that the fees was very high, you know. For over a decade, the family tried to fulfill his father's dream of getting access to education and mobility. Nassar's father worked 16 to 24-hour shifts to pay for private education for the children, since the government wouldn't allow them to attend public school. Eventually, Nassar even passed the test and was accepted into medical school. But the costs were so prohibitive, he had to follow his parents back to Afghanistan in 2009. There, the U.S. Army offered job opportunities to Afghan citizens. I went to start working with U.S. Army and started support to them. I work within finance field and security. Working with the U.S. Army is not easy. We have a long process how you can get a job. A lot of background checks complete. There is lie detector test you have to give that one. When you pass that test, then you will get a job with them. And luckily when I applied, I passed everything. He got the job with the U.S. Army, but that did not mean he was safe. Because there is a lot of people who are fighting against Afghan government and America. Like I will give you an example of Taliban. Taliban are a big enemy of America. And of course, if I support U.S. Army or working with them, I'm also directly their enemy. Yeah, I'm a target. And that was a big challenge for me. Like, you know, my most of friends and families, members, they told me, don't put your life in danger. They know everything. They are not like people who are from outside or from anywhere. They are from the same country. They are living over there. We don't know who is my neighbor. There is no guarantee when and where the Taliban will kill him or their family or kidnap their kids. But this is a little like very serious, very serious. How it is possible that you will hide from them? It, it is not possible. I'm the one of the very unlucky person to become a refugee twice. No one risks their life to work for the U.S. Army in conditions like those in Afghanistan and then becomes a national security risk to us. To illustrate this, here is what Nassar went through because he worked for our Army. When I started working with the U.S. Army, uh, it was 2009, and same year, Taliban attacked on our house. And they wrote a letter that we attack on your house because of they mentioned my father's name, that he is working for Afghani government as a military. And because of his son, that he is supporting U.S. Army and my cousins, because they were also working with government. Now, that was the first attack. There was another attack in 2012 was happened in our camp where we were working. There was more than 200 Americans, 200, like almost 200 Afghani civilians and security guards. They attack our, our, our camp. It was a suicide bomb attack. Did you hear that? Over 200 American soldiers and 200 Afghan civilians were located at the U.S. Army base where this attack occurred. Several were injured, including Assar, who hurt his shoulder and head. The third attack was finally the one that motivated him to seek refuge in the U.S. This attack was very, very dangerous, and, you know, they killed, like, more than five, six people international security guards at the gate. But luckily others, you know, like we were safe in that one. So that was the reason that I, I decided 
to leave the country. In addition to the trauma of his third terrorist attack, Nassar began receiving numerous death threats. By calls, by letters, one day they stopped me and gave me a warning that this will be your last warning if you didn't stop working with the U.S. Army. As Nassar waited for his security checks and special immigrant visa application to be approved, he lived in fear of he and his family's safety every single moment. I worked with them for several years. I put my lab in dangerous because of U.S. Army. How they are doing my background check again and took years for this. And especially like very hard that you will never know that when I will die, when the people will come with the guns and will kill me or kill my family. And their question will be, okay, we are waiting for security. After all this waiting to die, he faced even more challenges before getting approved to resettle. Go for medical. And that is, again, expensive. I paid $2,500, you know, and two, you know, $2,500 is my father's yearly salary in Afghanistan. I paid that one, and then I wait for interview date, waited, until they send me another email after six months that, hi, Nisar, your medical has expired, and uh. you have to do another medical. I say, what? He say, yes. You know, I try to cry. One side, I'm going to university to save my money. Another side, they're asking me to give me money to do your medical. My father told me, okay, Nisar, go. We will take the money from someone to borrow the money. And then when you go back to America, make money and send to them. Yeah, and schedule another uh, medical. And I went, I paid again $2,500. But luckily this time, after two weeks, they sent me an email that I have an interview. And then I went for interview, three and a half months that we can come here, send us uh, a letter. And I, I have to pay 5000 something for my travel, you know. Uh, it's, it is a loan that I'm still paying that one. Well, what's more American than debt, after all? Nassar began his life in America saddled with debt from his travel here. But he was finally safe and free to pursue his dreams. We will hear more about his life today in Houston on the other side of the expert opinion for this month, provided by Dr. Susan F. Martin. Susan Martin is the author of A Nation of Immigrants, a book where she outlines a colonial model of U.S. immigration, which she developed with the late immigration expert, Lawrence Fuchs one of the sculptors of modern-day U.S. immigration policy. Fuchs earned this designation for having laid the groundwork for the last major overhaul of American immigration law and for having advised President John F. Kennedy and heading up immigration committees under several U.S. presidents. If Neil deGrasse Tyson is Carl Sagan's protege, then Martin is Fuchs's. Martin herself served as executive director of the U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform, following in Fuchs's footsteps. She's the author of numerous books seen in immigration college classrooms across the country, including the book we're discussing now. It looked to me as if there were some confusion about what it actually meant to be a nation of immigrants. And I worked closely with another immigration scholar, Lawrence Fuchs, who was the executive director of the Select Commission on Immigration and Refugee Policy. 
And in our work, we looked at what became in my book three major models of immigration that defined what we think about ourselves when we talk about being a nation of immigrants. So the first chronologically was the Virginia model. And that was a model in which the leaders of Virginia wanted people to come and join the colony, but they really needed workers and they didn't care very much about where their labor came from as long as it provided inexpensive or cheap, and in many cases, exploitable labor. They began with people coming as indentured servants when people weren't coming voluntarily and paying their own way. That They couldn't attract enough people, so they then tried convict labor. That didn't work out all that well. And they finally ended up using slave labor and importing labor from Africa as slaves. And so the concept was, yes, we want immigrants, but we really want laborers. That I consider to be a model that has come back and forth into American immigration at various points. And I think the large-scale tolerance for many years of undocumented migration really fits the Virginia model very well. The immigrants don't have full rights, but they provide needed or wanted labor. That has very much persisted. The second model was the Massachusetts model, and that was very different. Massachusetts was settled by merchants, but also religious dissidents, and they were forced to leave their home countries because they couldn't practice their religion freely. But they were not very tolerant of other religions. So they were started by the Puritans who really wanted purity in their religion. They attracted whole families and communities to come and establish life in Massachusetts. The migration that occurred during the 1630s, 40s, 50s was often referred to as the Great Migration because of the large number of families that came. But as soon as other religious dissidents came that didn't share their the Puritan beliefs, you saw different forms of attack, persecution. Had Roger Williams, who was a minister, not be able to practice his beliefs and those of his congregation, and they get expelled and found Rhode Island. The woman, Ann Hutchinson, who was also very well respected among some, but not amongst the Puritan minister and leaders, and she's expelled from the colony as well. And when Quakers try to come from England and come to Massachusetts, they're expelled. And when they return to Massachusetts, they're actually imprisoned. And in at least one set of cases, they were murdered. They were killed by the authorities because of their religious beliefs. So welcome immigrants as long as they share the ideology, values, theocratic concept, and really what that meant. Uh, the third model was established in Pennsylvania, and there William Penn, when he got the grant from the king to establish a colony, decided that he wanted to make it on the basis of tolerance for all religion. And he wanted to attract people, not just from Great Britain, where most of the migrants had come, but also from continental Europe. So he advertised all over parts of now Germany. Austria, Netherlands, and said, if you want the freedom to practice your religion, come to Pennsylvania and you will become the new members of society and we will welcome you. And that's 
what I think most people have in mind when they hear the phrase a nation of immigrants. It's this very open idea that people will come and they will meld into something new, meaning a, a new American. And that has been certainly a facet of immigration from the beginning, but it also an aspiration that's very difficult to achieve. And when the public thinks that we're not achieving full integration of newcomers, that's when we often reach the point where real anti-immigrant sentiment arises, and it often leads to highly restrictive policies. And again, we've seen that throughout American history. Here are some key takeaways of the three models that Susan outlined. In some cases, there are economic pressures that challenge even people who are very supportive of immigration, who become worried. For example, during the Great Depression, people were worried about competition from immigrants. And in fact, 1932 was the only year in American history where more people left the United States than arrived. Susan gave some surprising reasons beyond economics that immigration is often resisted. Economics are always an important factor, but I don't know that that's the most important factor. I think the other two things that happen, one are, are the politics of immigration, that you get politicians, and we've seen this throughout American history, who are willing to use immigrants as scapegoats to try to explain why things are bad, that it's not their fault, certainly as politicians, it's not necessarily the form of government or the economy, the problem is that we're admitting immigrants. And you go back as far as somebody as revered in American history as Benjamin Franklin, when he was more of a politician in the colony of Pennsylvania and wanted to raise taxes to support the war effort when the French and Indian War was fought. He found some of the groups coming in as pacifists to be problematic. And he turned against the German immigrants and actually talked about that if Pennsylvania continued to attract as many German immigrants as it had been, everyone would be forced soon to learn German and it would no longer be an English colony. We've seen that the Know Nothing Party in the 1850s was anti-Irish immigration in particular, was also anti-Mexican immigration after the U.S. obtained so much territory from Mexico after the war with Mexico. And then you saw it most recently, certainly President Trump is an example. You know, somebody who's turned into a politician doesn't, I believe, have much of a, of a real platform with regard to immigration, but found it was very useful to get the nomination and then to win the election by convincing enough people that the problem is immigration. Fear is a powerful thing. In his Orange County column, Ask a Mexican, Gustavo Ariano presents the immigrant perspective of fear. Your life depends on a random stranger who could kill you, will probably disrespect you, and will most likely pay you much less than you deserve. But even those prospects are better than the ones you used to have. He was referring to Mexican day laborers. This sentiment is a universal one amongst immigrants and refugees. Yet receiving countries have their own fear. I think it's normal for people to be afraid of change. And when that change arrives in the form of immigrants who are not speaking the same language as the majority in the country, who may have different religions, for example, when the Irish came, they were Catholic, most of the country was Protestant. 
then I think that it's very difficult to achieve consensus with regard to immigration because people really are afraid of what it will bring to the country and the nature of the culture and the society. In the 1920s, there was the Red Scare, and it was associated with immigrants. And it was one of the reasons that that led to the legislation in 1921 and then 1924 that provided national origins quotas that would only accept people from Western Europe and not Eastern Europe or Southern Europe because they were feared as security threats compared yeah. to the British and Scandinavians, etc. That's a lot of what's happening today. And of course, most people have not observed the screening processes that we have in place. They aren't really familiar with how many steps and how, in some cases, ludicrous the process is because it subjects a two-year-old to the same very, very lengthy process, even if that two-year-old needs to come into the country for surgery or something of that sort. And I have observed cases, people with serious medical problems who could pose absolutely no risk to the country were not able to enter because they were in this massive waiting period and not able to come. Fear that these were you know, people coming in with alien notions, that they were actually you know, coming in to spy on the country, and that it was detrimental to the security of the United States. And it turned out that many of the Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany who came in were pivotal in helping to win World War II. And we've again seen that process happen a lot of times you know, where immigrants and refugees adopt the U.S. as their country and join the military, do whatever they can to help secure our country. And often their knowledge of the languages and society's cultures of the countries that we're fighting have proven to be pivotal in allowing us to win. One of the reasons that we, after World War II, developed policies first to admit refugees, and then in 1980, permanent legislation, Refugee Act of 1980, was to find a mechanism by which we could admit people, as the language says, who are of special humanitarian concern to the U.S. And that meant after the Hungarian Revolution, we admitted Hungarian refugees because we supported their anti-Soviet campaign and wanted to help save their lives in order to encourage others to feel that they could oppose the Soviet Union. Uh, same thing with Cubans. After the Cuban Revolution, we had special priority given to uh, the Vietnamese who had either worked for the U.S. military who had otherwise supported the U.S. government or U.S. companies in Vietnam. The harder thing is to look at what we are doing and what kind of integration programs there are and the ways in which we, as a receiving country, think about our role. And that's much more difficult because that means you have to look very deeply inside ourselves to see how welcoming we actually are. As Susan has shown us, the pattern of fearing immigrants has always been a part of our history in America. Yet through all of those fears and uncertainties, never have we looked back with regret and said, We were right to keep out Jews, Hungarians, Irish, Germans, Italians, Mexicans, Japanese, Catholic, or any other identity. On the contrary, if hindsight is 2020, we can now see that these were unfounded fears that, while natural, prove over and over again to be short-sighted and misguided. 
It would be great progress if our nation could value the sacrifices that immigrants and refugees make to help us build a better world. And Nassar is doing that himself in Houston today. I always feel proud to tell my story after my arrival to the United States. I know before 2014, it was not a happy story. But after 2014, my dream story is here. It's going to start from here. In the beginning, you know, in November 2014, when I arrived here to the United States, luckily, my resettlement agency is same where I'm working right now as a resettlement case manager. All of them, they love refugees, but Houston, Houstonian, they love, you know, they always welcome them. They, you know, when I share and I tell to someone that I'm SIV and I work with U.S. Army, they always, like, you know, appreciate me. They came to me, hi, thank you, Nisar, to, to, you know, for your service, to working with U.S. Army, to tell to the Americans who welcome us that we are also a nice people, want to help our people. If you, you know, if you give me a hand, I will give you a hug. That's why I decided to start a work in social. But there was a little bit problem. Part-time job, I have my full-time job in my college. How and which, which one I need to handle it. I went to sit with my wife. She told me, do this one because I really want, and you also want, that you can continue your work in a place that where you can help others. And this is a good opportunity for you. Don't worry about your full-time job. God will give you any, any scary life, you know. And I am feeling comfortable sitting in my office to work. You know, I'm feeling good that my, my kids will go back to home safely. I am sitting in front of you and talking with you within three years with a good English, with a nice suit and a chair. How it is possible? It is possible only and only because of resettlement. We hope you enjoyed this month's episode. Please join us next episode, where we'll take a look at the current global migration crisis. This program is made possible by the generous support of Southern Methodist University's Embry Human Rights Program. I'm your host, Tiffany Jelke. This podcast could not be made possible without the tireless efforts of Allison Plake, audio production intern, and Michelle Laura, production assistant. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash in their own voices. Thank you for joining us.